Hello, and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, episode 24, coming to you virtually from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K., Coming up in a few moments, we'll be joined by Greg Barbanel, an Emmy Award-winning Foley artist with 43 years in the business. But first, we wanted to quickly remind you about a couple opportunities to support local theater, whether you live where we do or tuning in from afar. Tonight, Friday, April 16th, and tomorrow, Saturday, April 17th, the Women's Theater Festival presents Shakespeare's classic Othello, starring our friend and guest from episode 13, Seattle actor and coach Zandy Carlson in the pivotal role of Iago. Tickets are pay what you can, and this is the last weekend to catch Othello, so visit womenstheaterfestival.com for more information and to get tickets. If you've been a listener for long, you know that we're big on supporting local theater and entertainers and artists. Coming up on April 20th is the 2021 Kitsap Great Give. The Great Give is 24 hours of online giving hosted by the Kitsap Community Foundation in support of many nonprofits in Kitsap County. Two that are close to our hearts are the historic Roxy Theater in Bremerton and the Western Washington Center for the Arts in Port Orchard. Matt and I and many of our local listeners have acted at WWCA and enjoyed wonderful entertainment at the Roxy, like last weekend's 30th anniversary showing of The Silence of the Lambs. And thank you to everyone who came out for that one. We had a great time. Your tax-deductible donation will be magnified by bonus funds on April 20th, but you don't have to wait until then to donate. Early giving is open now, and links to The Great Give and The Roxy and WWCA are uh, in the show notes. So check them out, read up on the fantastic work those two theaters are doing in our community, and please donate. And if you're joining us from elsewhere in the country or world, please give to whatever theaters you have in your area. This has obviously been a tough year, and we all need to pitch in to keep local theaters alive and well. Many thanks from both of us. And now we're pleased to be joined by Emmy Award-winning Foley artist Greg Barbanel. Greg is originally from San Francisco, California, and graduated with a BFA in film from California Institute of the Arts. He's been a Foley artist for 43 years with 573 IMDb credits to his name. Notable credits include, in film, El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie, The Revenant, Suicide Squad, Little Miss Sunshine, Spirited Away, The Fast and the Furious, Dumb and Dumber, My Cousin Vinny, Point Break, and Wall Street. And on television, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, The Walking Dead, Chicago PD, Chicago Med, Law and Order SVU, and in video games and cinematics, Overwatch, World of Warcraft, StarCraft II, Call of Duty, Diablo III, Lost Planet, Gears of War, and Need for Speed. Greg has received 13 Emmy nominations and one in 2004 for the documentary Dinosaur Planet. His work has also landed him 32 motion picture sound editors nominations and nine wins. Greg has worked for Disney Studios and Warner Brothers and is currently employed at NBC Universal. Greg, welcome. Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, as a Foley artist, Greg, you're responsible for producing those sounds that we hear in films, television shows, video games. Uh, when it comes to filmmaking, this is a pretty specialized skill and, and kind of niche compared to a lot of a lot of things. Is it something that you've always wanted to pursue? Or was it something that, you know, along the lines in your career, your schooling that that you were inspired to get into? It's definitely not something I wanted to pursue. It's something I literally tripped and fell into growing up or even when I was in college. I, I was at that point pretty unaware of Foley or what a Foley artist is, even going through film school. When I got out of college, I started a sound post-production company. We edited all the soundtracks, prepared all the tracks, went to the final mix, supervised the whole thing. 
And part of that job was doing the Foley. So I jumped in. I went to the Foley stage. I uh, brought what I thought I would need to do what I needed to do. And um, I, I discovered I kind of had a knack for it. And basically what Foley is, is we make sound effects, but we actually perform them. We perform them sync to picture while watching the film or the scene roll uh, on the screen in front of us. We'll perform whatever sounds we're doing sync to picture. So you, you know, you, you have to be able to solve problems and get things uh, done and have the reflexes to uh, anticipate what the actor is going to do and, and what have you broken down into three parts. First thing we do is we make a cloth track and then we uh, uh, do the footsteps and then we do all the props. And that's basically what we do. Do you ever, when, when you make a, a sound effect for a particular film or, or product, do you ever go back and use the same thing again? Or is it always a unique exercise for each project that you're working on? Good question. Uh, in Foley, it's always a unique performance. Even something as mundane as putting a coffee mug down on a table, there's many ways to do that. Is the actor angry when he puts the coffee cup down? Is he trying to be quiet? Is he uh, gentle? Is he rough? Uh, there can be, you can slam it down flat. You can put it on one edge and then drop the, you know, so... Even if something as mundane as putting a coffee cup down, we do it sync to picture every single time. Um, the moment you start saving our sounds to a library and then taking it and cutting it in to fit the picture, which of course is done, that's what sound editing is. But the moment you do that, it's no longer fully, it's now sound effects editing. As we researched for this show, uh, it occurred to me that the closest thing that I could compare Foley to in my own mind was a percussionist. All of your different limbs are going, your hands, your feet, and you've got to have, I mean, you want to talk about precise timing and hand-eye coordination. It just amazed me. I, now, you've worked in a, a variety of media, film, like we said in your, um, in your bio, film, TV, video games. Does the work differ uh, drastically from one uh, media to the next? And do you have a favorite uh, to work in? Well, there's not a whole lot of difference when I'm working on a video game or whether I'm working on a film or whether I'm working on television. My process of performing the Foley is pretty much the same. What does differ is the amount of time we have to do it. So on a feature film, uh, generally, uh, it's much more gracious. We may have uh, anywhere from five days to 15 to 20 days on a feature film sometimes more, to do all the Foley on a hour and a half, hour, 45 minute feature film. A one hour drama and television, we may have a day. Wow. So there's a difference in the way, you know, in, in how detailed and how experimental we can get. Video games, it, uh, one of the main things in video games that's very different is uh, there's basically two types of work done in video games. One is called cinematics, which is basically like working on a feature film. It's a movie. It has a beginning, middle, and end, and it flows 
And then there's the what they call in-game. In-game Foley is uh, a completely different thing. In-game Foley is we're producing the sounds of individual footsteps or hits or impacts or body falls or rolls or tumbles, jump up, jump down. And if you could imagine kind of a, a grid uh, and across the top is all the, or uh, down, down the side is all the um, things that you need to do, like jump, land, tumble, roll, run, walk, crawl, da, 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 da. And across the top is on dirt, sand, wood, grass, leaves, snow, gravel. So you take the first one, I got to jump up and down. They want to like 20, 20 times, <laughs> you know, you got to jump up and down 20 times and you got to do it 20 times on gravel, on dirt, on wood, Boy. on carpet. On <laughs> and then you go to the next one. Okay. Now a tumble and roll. And you got to do that on all these different services. It's hell. First of all, you're not working the picture. You're just making sounds because what the in-game sounds that Foley artists produce are for, these are the sounds that are triggered by gameplay. So when you take your guy and you jump him and land him, it triggers that specific sound to be grabbed and, and played to match what you're doing as a, as a player. Do you find then that it's more enjoyable to do the film and television work where you're doing things along and doing the syncing up with scenes when you've got the video versus doing some of that repetitive kind of stuff? I actually, I won't accept in-game work anymore. Too much for me. It's, uh, you're just pounding yourself silly for eight hours uh, with no picture to go to. I'll let other people deal with that. Now, I used to do quite a lot of it. But uh, the cinematics are a whole different thing. I don't know if you guys or anyone that's listening has ever seen any of the, like, uh, the Blizzard Entertainment cinematics, like for World of Warcraft, or uh, the ones that I really love are Overwatch. And they make these miniature movies that are anywhere from two to seven or eight minutes long that is kind of like backstory for each character. And they're incredibly well done. And they're some of my most favorite things to work on because we are given carte blanche, whatever it takes, it takes. If it takes you two days, great. If it takes four, no problem. So, and we take great care. And some of my most favorite work I've ever done has been on some of those Overwatch and World of Warcraft cinematics. So we had Nick Dolan, a film composer, on a few months ago, and we talked about the importance of music in mm -hmm. film and these other. And I think this is, you know, right up there. It, sound, just in general, I think all encompassing music, the sound effects, and and things like that. From the process perspective, he he kind of went through the process of of scoring things and then working with a director to change things up as he went along. How does that work from a foley perspective? Obviously, you you create sounds and sync them up. Is there a back and forth with directors? Uh, what do you do to help, I mean, move the director's vision forward in that way? Well, we try to move the director's vision forward, but we don't interact or almost never interact with the director. We're, we're not hired by the directors. We're hired by the supervising sound editors. So they're the ones that give us direction. They sit down with the director and get all their notes and all their spotting and you know, what they're 
after and what they're trying to do and they relay that to us and we don't when we do our job when we're actually performing the foley on a show very rarely these days is the supervisor um sitting with us he might drop in and do playbacks and he wants to check how this is going or whatever but our guide that it's the cue sheets that tell us what to do so the cue sheets or the the cues are built into a pro tool session so it'll generate a pro tool session to create regions in the regions he'll say i need joe's footsteps on carpet in a tennis shoe from this point to this point so when we open up the session we see the whole grand everything that they want on the show and then and we start chipping away at, at that so that's our bible if you will we always have the ability to add to that if we have time we're going to say you know what it'd be nice let's instead of this let's or let's give them that but let's also do this version of it so the director is not really the one that we deal with i've had directors come to the stage little miss sunshine it was i think a husband and wife directing team they came by but that's that was just because they were fascinated they never seen it and they wanted to stop in and see what we were doing and that was fun but they're not telling us what to do at all well how many how many hours do you suspect you work on a on a particular film on any film is there or is it different the vary so much between films you really can't even it does vary very uh, a great deal um let me think of it as some examples on film. There's a film we did called Sausage Party. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you guys saw that. Yeah, the animated one. Yeah, that was nuts. Jeff Roubaix is a supervising sound editor and a fabulous uh, guy. Also did a, a, a new picture. It's not out yet called Mitchell versus the Machines, another animated feature. But like on Sausage Party, I think total, we might have done 15 days. Wow. Whereas there are other, I mentioned Little Miss Sunshine. Little Miss Sunshine was an independent, very low budget film that did, of course, extremely well. But they were on a budget. I think we did Little Miss Sunshine in, I can't remember exactly, but I'm going to say maybe six days, five days. Wow. Something like that. So every project, it varies. Same with television. We, um, I'm working for NBC Universal now. We do a lot of the the Universal drama stuff. Uh, plus, we do a lot of the sitcoms also. But one-hour dramas like Chicago Med that I work on, that's 12 hours. We get 12 hours to do one episode. Chicago PD, we get eight hours. But the difference is that the sound editors take on more of the prop work. So we do less of the props on that than we would on med med, you know, we do a lot. And then the other side of that coin, there are times when, uh, you know, like on breaking bad and better call Saul breaking bad and better call Saul, both a routine episode is two and a half days. And there were some episodes of breaking bad where we would go three and a half days on a, 50 minute show very very rare in television they give you that kind of time but on that show they they relied heavily on the foley um so they wanted it right and they're you know every episode of both of those shows breaking bad and better call saul 
handled by everybody, not just Foley, but the sound and the photography and the acting and the directing and everything, cinematography. It's all done like a feature film. It's just exquisite. Very rare to see that kind of level of work in television. Yeah, that, that level of quality on, on those shows is incredible. Uh, interesting call out on Sausage Party, music by Alan Menken, which you wouldn't, huh. which you wouldn't ordinarily associate with a film like that, considering all the Disney stuff he's done. Yeah, that was a fun project, I got to tell you. There, there was some crazy stuff we had to do, <laughs> and it was a lot of fun. We laughed a lot. Well, speaking about getting things right, uh, another of our guests, um, University of Prince Edward Island professor Annabelle Cohen, who's a music psychologist, she described to us how our minds react differently when we expect a certain sound to accompany an action and we hear something different. So what tools and processes do you use to make sure that the sounds we hear match what we see on the screen, especially when you're recreating a sound that can't be safely or easily duplicated, like, say, a vehicle crash? Well, when we do vehicle crashes, first of all, um, we do elements for it. They're going to cut big sound effects stuff for the, but we'll do all the little pieces, the piece of trim that flies up and bounces or the, uh, the tire bouncing away or, uh, you know, uh, the, the hubcap, you know, rolling and wobbling to a stop. <laughs> all those uh, types of things are broken down into tiny little pieces that we make sure that we add to give it you know, that kind of perfection. But getting back to the question, it's all in in your head. So we take, when I work on a film, I'm always aware of what it is this scene is trying to get across. And I do everything I can to help it. That's kind of why that documentary you watch called Actors of Sound, that's kind of, that, 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 term actors of sound, which I never heard of until he made this movie. Um, but we are in fact performing. So when I do f- a footstep cues, there are many ways to do it. And what I do is I get the, I, first thing I do is I check out the body language of the character I'm working on. And immediately all the things, you know, is, is he energetic? Is he unhappy? Is he depressed? Is he uh, a bad guy? Is he a good guy? Is he uh, fun? All these things tell me how to perform his feet when I do it. Same thing with props. Let's talk about props for a second. There's an event that happens and I, a, you can make a sound for it, something that may not be regular, like a coffee cup down, but something, someone's swinging back and forth on a swing. There's a, all kinds of way, or, or, or whatever. There are many sounds I can make to put in that sound great, but they're all different. So a lot of it's your discretion then as the artist. It's uh, my discretion as the artist. And sometimes if we come up with two things that are really good, We'll give them both as an option. But that's what why people hire me or any other Foley artist is because of the decisions we make and our ability to do what we do as artists to help the picture sonically, you know, and with all the decisions we make. There's a million ways to do things. But, uh, you know, I often tell people there's, they'll say, is that the right sound? It's not about right or wrong. It's about what works. And what were when you it's a feeling you get when you make a sound and you watch it back and you're going, yeah, oh yeah, that's that's it. That's the one. So it's um 
it's an it's a feeling. I remember my first exposure to Foley was as a child watching the show Wishbone on PBS, and they um, took the the viewers into a Foley pit and showed how they would chop cabbages and things like that. Yes. It was for something set in the French Revolution, um, a bit advanced maybe for for children. But <laughs> uh, we've all we, we've all heard the stories about, of course, using melons, right. and I think in um, in the documentary they talk about uh, the scene from The Untouchables. Yeah. And the the table scene with the baseball bat, so you know coconuts for hoofbeats, things like that. We've all heard of that stuff. What's but what's the most bizarre or creative prop you've used to create a sound? Wow. And maybe as a follow up, what's the craziest sound you've ever been asked to create? You know, it's I I have to in my off time I have to give this, I have to really come up with a good answer for this because I am often asked this very question. And the body of work over 40 whatever years, it's, I've never been able to, you know. Maybe something on Sausage Party, something pretty wild, (laughs) wacky. Yeah, I mean, you know, every project has literally maybe a 500 to 1,000 cues in it. It's hard to think uh, specifically, but. I remember on the documentary, you were at, I think, a, like a swap meet or a, a antique store and found this really great meat grinder. Yes. And it wasn't a ma- about making meat grinder noises, but it was about just the squeeze. Yes. One of my favorite props. Yeah. The plastic handle on the end that's, that, yeah. that swivels on the shaft that turns so that when you crank it, you know, uh, it, it, you know, but this one particularly I found when you twist it slightly it makes a beautiful little squeak perfect for like turning on a tap or in the sink it's that kind of thing and i use that constantly another prop that i stumbled on i was playing golf one day this is 25 years ago i still have it and they were redoing part of this golf course they were redoing the sprinkler system in an area so it was dug up and there was crap laying around one of the things i found was this come along, which is generally used on on uh, semi trucks, and they'll throw a chain over the load, and they'll use this thing, and it cinches up. It's got like chain parts and iron, and and it's this device that cinches up the cable or the chain uh, to tighten it. And there's one of these uh, laying on the ground, and I looked at it and I stopped and I picked it up and I moved it and was making all kinds of amazing squeaky sounds and (laughs) chain and jangly and I said oh my god this thing is amazing you unzip the long pocket in my bag and I put this thing that must weigh 10 pounds (laughs) Uh, and of course I'm walking the course at the time and I was about as far away from the clubhouse so I finished my round with this extremely heavy <laughs> golf bag. And I have used that prop countless times. There's a great scene in Breaking Bad. I couldn't even begin to tell you what season. Toward the end, Jesse is in this park at night and he kind of sits on this swing and he's kind of rocking and moving around. And I use this prop and it was just, it was. Perfect. Perfect. So, you know, a lot of it is luck. You probably can't put, can't drive past a garage sale, can you? My son grew up with me uh, going to swap meets and garage sales. And he was, I remember him being like six or seven 
and he'd like wander off and, you know, we would do this routinely and he'd come running back. Dad, look what I found. Listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> Is he following in your footsteps? No, thank God. No, 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 no. He's, <laughs> he works. As, uh, no pun intended, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, he's, uh, he had, he had no desire uh, to do that. I asked him one time when he was older, I said, well, did you ever think about doing folk? I mean, I would, I, I had him as a single dad for quite a while. And uh, so he spent a lot of time on the stages. You know, I put him in the booth with some toys and, and he would come out and help, you know, I'd have him do bang a thing or do something. So he spent a lot of his youth on the stage, but uh, I asked him, did you ever think about wanting to, you know, be a Foley artist? And he said, hell no, I watched you. <laughs> I, I, I watched you struggle. You know, I mean, you don't get rich doing this. Uh, and, and in the early days before I had, uh, you know, uh, these gigs with the studios, I was an independent and, you know, you work and then you don't. Uh, I was very lucky in my career. I worked quite a bit. So, uh, but, you know, he said, no, I want to make more money than you. <laughs> and you did. Well, you mentioned being independent and then working with studios. So how do you get engaged as a Foley artist? I guess when you're starting out, is it that you've got to build kind of a reputation you've got to do some small things and then as your reputation grows people solicit you i would say in general that's probably a, a fair assessment of, of of how this works not so much with me because uh, as i said before uh out of college i actually started a full service uh post-production company so we did all the preparing of all the tracks and performing the foley uh, supervising the ADR sessions, building all the tracks necessary to go to the final mix and super being there with the directors and whoever at, at the final mix. So I, my specialty was sound effects and Foley. And I had a partner in that business and his specialty was dialogue editing and ADR. He would supervise the ADR sessions and he would cut all the dialogue tracks and I would get the Foley done and cut all the sound effects tracks. So we did that with that company for about eight years. After I sold the company, immediately, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to, what do I want to do now? Do I want to go and work for someone else? Do I, what do I want to do? Um, the phone started ringing like crazy from a lot of my competitors. We would bid against other people who were supervising sound editors and asking me if I would, uh, you know, they heard that we're not doing that anymore. And they wanted to know if I would do fully on this project they had. And that just kept happening. The phone kept ringing and I kept doing fully on other people's projects. So I guess I had the luxury of developing my reputation, uh, doing all the shows that my own company was doing. But you keep getting called based on your reputation. And I've, I've been fortunate enough to have a pretty good reputation and I've worked a lot. Given that you are mostly remote and, and maybe you've already answered this with that other answer, with COVID, obviously everybody's working remote, films are being done differently. Does that really impact how you do your work because you're remote already? Well, to a small degree, I mean, 
once this thing first hit a year ago uh, and we realized, uh-oh, uh, this is serious, Universal shut everything down, you know, production stopped. And we had a few projects that were already in the can that we were able to do, but we were down about four or five months and with no work. And then in late October, things started coming back and they came back fairly slowly, but you know, we had one show and then, and, uh, then we had two shows and, and then very rapidly we went back to f working five days a week. Uh, very, we're very fortunate about that, but it did slightly change the way we work. Um, uh, I have a Foley partner and there's a mixer up in the, in the control room. We tended to keep our distance, obviously. We tended to not to try and reduce the amount of work we had to do with backgrounds. So with footsteps, I would do pick a character and do that character's feet through the whole show or episode. My partner would do a character. I would go back and do it. We'd go back and forth onto the stage. And then when there's backgrounds, like the group walking back and forth in the hospital, you know, what have you in the back, we would have to both work together. And we tried to stay as far apart as possible and wearing masks. And we tried to reduce that exposure um, as much as we could. But I was lucky on my crew because we all were, were all very careful and my mixer and my partner and myself uh, live by ourselves. There's no family, wives, husbands, uh, you know, at home that could increase. So we, we felt relatively secure and you know, we were all very careful. For the most part, it didn't affect us. We just tended to do things individually as much as possible. Uh, you mentioned earlier the documentary uh, Actors of Sound, which Greg and I both watched this last weekend. And uh, you said something interesting uh, during one of the interviews. You talked about how when you take the element, actually, I think you mentioned this earlier uh, just in our discussion. When you take that human element out of Foley, the job literally just becomes sound editing. And one of the topics that was grappled with on the documentary was kind of the approaching hoofbeats of, of digital sound effects right. and the potential loss of studios like uh, Sound One in New York. Yep. Something we, we brushed on um, a few episodes back was, you know, uh, artificial intelligence and actors, what that means for live actors. Do you think that digital libraries will ever fully replace human fully artists? Well, as you saw in the documentary, and I'll, I'll mention again, there have been several very serious attempts to try and get rid of the fully artists. The real problem is the footsteps. Props is basically sound editing. We just perform it rather than having them take a, a, a something from a library and edit it to make it work, to make it fit. So props is something that they could, and in some cases have taken away from the foliaris. Footsteps they tried. They, there was a couple of companies that did a massive effort in digitizing all kinds of different footsteps on different surfaces with different shoes. And they digitized tens of thousands of little individual footsteps and slides and what have you. And then they had to hire, of course, some guy to literally, I guess you would dial in, it's a tennis shoe and it's on uh, cement. And then they would literally hit keys, you know, while watching the person walk and it worked, but it was 
they couldn't get around the fact that it was very robotic. That human element, they were unable to replace. I mean, there was footsteps there, but it sounded like crap. Yeah, yeah you know? and I even think that the coffee mug example you made earlier, every every time you put a coffee mug with, with a human weight on it in, in all the iterations, at some point, you would think that we'd be able to pick up on the repetitiveness or the artificialness of, of the sounds if it comes from a, from a computer like that. That's exactly right. But it's magnified with footsteps because footsteps, there's a, just a great depth of nuances involved in, in, in your feet, in, in the footsteps. Um, the way someone comes to a stop and they'll pivot and turn and toe in and, uh, you know, go up on their toes and drop back down on their heels. And some people drag their feet as they walk or they'll kind of scuff their toe up on the, on the uptake. This would be impossible. Uh, and, and it was proven to be impossible. There, when I was at Warner Brothers, there was one or two shows where as the Foley teams at Warner Brothers, were, we were only asked to do the feet. We no longer had to do props because that was all being done digitally. And I mean, even the things that are difficult to cut, somebody doing some insane uh, fingers drumming, um, you know, with weird different, I mean, good luck cutting that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, but they, they did that and it only worked for television. They would only do it on television and I guess they're trying to train the audiences. Don't care. Don't don't worry about the quality. Uh, you know, it's television. We're going to get away with doing these feet, you know, digitally. And they're trying to, you know, but I don't know how successful that is. I'm not at Warner Brothers anymore. I don't know if they're still doing that. So the Foley artist abides then. Looking forward in the future, would I recommend somebody want to be a Foley artist? I don't know. Because efforts are being made. We're, we're a fully to the, to the studio system. We're an, a, a necessary evil. It's expensive. The studio's expensive. There's a, it's a three-person team to generate sound effects. When they, they have some guy in a room on uh, Pro Tools who can cut sound effects, you know. So it's an expensive process, and they would love to get rid of us. But ultimately... The human element is too important, and maybe in the future, uh, it'll become more of a craft thing, you know, that the really special projects will get the full-blown Foley treatment, while the mundane, everyday, crappy TV is going to get a lot of digital crap stuff. <laughs> so will it ever go away completely? I don't think so. I, I don't think it can. And it's... So one thing unique about Foley is it's literally, we're doing the same thing they were doing in the radio dramas. It's decidedly low tech crap. And yet it persists. You can't really do a film or television show without it. It's pretty unique. My first uh, exposure to anything Foley was when Disney opened up MGM studios in Florida. And it actually at that point was a studio, kind of a working studio. And all the shows were focused on filmmaking. Obviously, it's nothing like that now. Uh, but they had a show called The Monster Sound Show where they bring up people from the audience 
they'd show a, a clip, a video clip with no sound. Then they'd have the people do footsteps and, and various noises. And I thought that was the coolest thing. And I had no inclination or idea of how anybody would get into doing that. But it seemed fun to me. And I think there's a lot of people that feel that way. But if somebody was to be interested in getting into sound editing or sound effects, do you have any sort of advice? I mean, there's some schools that have programs. I think uh, Berkeley has one and, and some others in, in Foley Technique. But do you have any uh, particular advice for people who'd be interested in getting into this? Well, sound editing and sound effects is different than Foley. A lot of the good film schools, obviously, sound is, has become a big deal now versus 25, 30 years ago. Sound is recognized now as a very, very important aspect of, of the entire filmmaking process. So a lot of the big schools are dealing with that uh, properly. And they're teaching you how to edit sound. They're teaching you how to do uh, what have you. There's only a couple of schools that I know of that actually have fully stages. Chapman University in Southern California has not only a fully stage, but what I consider to be a professional quality fully stage. It's exceptional. And I've been fortunate enough to be asked to go down and teach master classes there. And it's always a lot of fun. And uh, I'm very impressed that the, they would actually go to the expense and use the space to have a really nice Foley stage. I think USC also deals with it. Beyond that, I'm not aware. I'm sure a few do, but uh, teaching sound effects and, and, and editing and, and sound design and that sort of thing, I think it's fairly common today as part of the curriculum of a film education. Foley, not so much. You don't go to school to become a Foley artist. You're wasting your money. And very few, none of them really teach it. I mean, like I said, at, at Chapman University, they have classes for Foley, which is fantastic. But do you graduate uh, as a Foley artist? Not one. So if you want to pursue a career in sound or sound editing, there is a number of schools where you can learn that, including Full Sail, which is a very popular. A lot of people I've known and throughout the years have come out of Full Sail. But for Foley, it's, it's really tight and closed. And the, the way in is to contact a Foley artist and say, I want to hang out. I just want to come down. Will you let me come and hang with you and watch? And then if you hit it off, you'll be invited to come back and watch some more. And then maybe <laughs> you really hit it off. Then they'll get you out there and start doing some cues and away you go. That's how most people have gotten into it. It sounds similar to, uh, to casting in a way in that uh, there's not really a career path or even an educational path for a casting director. You just kind of intern, work as an assistant and, and slowly kind of work your way up. It's very similar. I, I would imagine it's very much it's it's uh, there's no clear cut path. Everybody's story. If you talk to Foley artists, ev everyone's story is different. So, Matt, when you go to L.A., you ring up Greg and then you hang out with him for a little while. And oh, you're, you're good to you go. guys are welcome, man. I, I would love that. Yeah, you should come and hang out. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. You'll, you'll buy lunch. We're packing our bags. You bet. We'll be happy to. <laughs> <laughs> we need some sunshine. <laughs> our guest today is veteran Foley artist Greg Barbadell. 
When we come back, we'll chat more with Greg about some of his experiences working on the AMC hit Breaking Bad, how he added his own touch of humor to 2006's Road, tragic comedy Little Miss Sunshine, and we'll find out what it's like creating sounds from 65 million years ago. So, thanks for listening, and we'll be right back on Heilman and Haber. Welcome back to Heilman and Haver. Today is Friday, April 16th, and on this day in 1932, comedy short The Music Box premiered. Starring Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, The Music Box is just 29 minutes long and won the first ever Academy Award for Best Live Action Short for Comedy. The short film tells the story of deliverymen Laurel and Hardy as they struggle to push a large crated piano, much like the legendary Sisyphus of old, up a seemingly insurmountable flight of stairs. The stairs, 133 stairs to be exact, with multiple landings, still exist in the Silver Lake District of Los Angeles near Laurel and Hardy Park. And because that movie was released in 1932, it's part of Pre-Code April, which we're doing over on Twitter to support our returning guest Matthew Turner's uh, initiative over there. So uh, be sure to try to watch that one and any other Pre-Code movies and go out to Twitter and join the conversation with the hashtag Pre-Code April. And then born today in 1889, the man to whom Stan Laurel understudied on the English stage and who roomed with Laurel upon moving to America, Charlie Chaplin, considered to be one of the most pivotal stars of the early days of Hollywood, Chaplin is most often associated with his popular character, the little tramp, with his toothbrush, mustache, bowler hat, bamboo cane, and funny walk. Chaplin was the founder of United Artists, along with Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, and D.W. Griffith, and at just 5'4", was one of the giants of the silent era. Thanks to OnThisDay.com and the Internet Movie Database at IMDB.com for today's trivia. And speaking of the silent era, how ironic that the man whose name would become forever synonymous with the creation of sound for film started his career in the silent era. Born on April 12, 1891, Jack Foley began his Hollywood career as a double and stuntman, but went on to create the art form and techniques for adding sound effects to films that carry on today. Foley personally worked on films like Melody of Love in 1928, Showboat in 1929, Dracula in 1931, Spartacus in 1960, and Operation Petticoat in 1959 and received the MPSE Golden Reel Award for his life's work. And joining us today is a star of the Foley Studio, an artist with 43 years experience and 573 IMDb credits to his name, Greg Barbanel. So during our first segment, we chatted with Greg about the art of Foley effects. Now we'd like to hear more about some of the hit shows and films he's contributed to. So, Greg, in the Actors of Sound documentary, you said that working on AMC's colossal hit Breaking Bad required creating brand new sounds unique to that show. What were some of those specific sounds and what solutions did you come up with? When I first got contacted by Nick Forshager, who was the supervising sound editor on the show, he called me and said, I got a project I, I think you're going to be really interested in, and I'd love to have you do it. But it's different than anything else you've ever done in that everything is going to be under a microscope. I mean, the, the amount of precision and what, we're going to ask of you is going to be very demanding. And we're going to be asking you to do things that you would normally never do. Or you would look at on a normal show and say, there's no way I'm doing that. No one's ever going to hear it. It's a waste of time. And there's a story I tell, which I'll briefly tell again about the, uh, this was the eye opener for me. Um, Anyway, I told Nick, I'd be thrilled to do this. And I was very excited. Uh, And of course it was a, probably one of the most creatively satisfying projects I've ever been uh, connected with. 
film, television, doesn't matter. Uh, it was just challenging and fun and, and, and uh, uh, creatively satisfying beyond belief. So we're a couple episodes in and we have a cue. I talked about, you know, we, we, we get on the session, you know, there's, and we print out cue sheets and it says stick bug walking. And so we go to the number and we're looking at the scene and it's a, it's a vista. The camera's really low. It's in the, you know, New Mexican desert and the camera's kind of down on the ground, but you can see all the way out and in the way, way miles away, the mountains and the, you know, the shrubbery and all that up close, but, you know, in dirt right up to where the camera is. And it's a stick bug walking. Now, you know what a stick bug is. Mm -hmm. You can barely see them. They're just literally like little (laughs) pins. And the first time we looked at it, we're going, what the hell is he talking about? There's no stick. (laughs) But there it is going, I think it was right to left, right in the foreground, kind of. Not really close, so it looked like a monster. But there it was back there, walking across the sand or the dirt. And he's cued us to do the footsteps. For this stick bug. And I'm like going, you've got to be fucking kidding me. There is no way. But, you know, I remember the lecture I got about just, you're going to be asked to do things. (laughs) And uh, I... Careful what you wish for. I got out, I got got the mic down within a couple of inches of the dirt. And I'm, I'm down on the ground. And I think I used, I think I tried like pins, but it was too thin. It was too it would go into the dirt and the sand without making much. So I think I graduated to like kitchen matchsticks because it would, there was more resistance in the dirt with a kitchen than with a pin. Uh, we tried a few things until I got the sound I wanted. And literally I just sat there and did the footsteps for the stick bug until we got it right and uh, chuckled about that one. And uh, off we went. And then, um, we were on the stage one day, this is like the next week, and the dubbing mixer, Eric Justin, uh, may he rest in peace, he unfortunately passed not too long after that. Young guy, amazing talent, great mixer. Uh, anyway, I get a call. Uh, we were talking, I think at lunch, we ran into, bumped into each other, and I mentioned something about the stick bug. He goes, oh, no, no, man, no. Stop by the stage. I'll show you. We're working. We're working on that now. Stop by the stage. So I ran uh, over to his stage later, and he went back and played the scene with everything kind of already mixed. And there it was, played up. That stick bug feet. I'm like dying. I'm going. You got to be kidding. <laughs> he says, "Dude, your stuff. This stuff is killer. All your work so far is amazing, and we're using the hell out of it." We're using, which is I, typically you do a lot of Foley, you do everything that's cued, 10% of it you're going to hear when you, when you watch it back, maybe. Uh, not so with Breaking Bad. So there's a story of my education on why uh, Breaking Bad was a different thing. And th- there was another story, the episode of The Fly. I don't know if you remember that. Mm-hmm. There is an episode called The Fly, and there was... Jesse and Walt are in the super lab. This is much later on, I think season three or four or something. And they're about to do a big cook and uh, Walt notices there's a fly buzzing around. So he shuts down the cook until they have to kill the fly. 
so the whole episode is about them trying to get this fly. And there was a scene, a shot of the fly that landed on something. And it was an extreme close-up of this fly. And it was on it for eight, 10 seconds. And it lifted its front feet up, rubbed them together, fluttered its wings, took a couple little steps, uh, shook its body. Uh, its little antennae came up and rubbed together. Um, <laughs> and they wanted every bit of that. Wow. And I think we were on that scene for like 45 minutes for like 10 seconds, getting every element just right, figuring out how the hell are we going to do these wings? And I, I can't honestly, I wish I could remember exactly what we settled on, but there's a lot of trial and error of things. Um, <laughs> and then when I watched that broadcast, it was all there. It was just beautiful. It was, it was amazing. So Breaking Bad was exceptional. The challenges were daily, every day. There was nothing basic uh, about that show. There was always something amazing. Um, another quick bit, Jesse is climbing a fence. He's trying to retrieve his RV out of this locked lot. And he climbs this fence and gets over this barbed wire and jumps down and lands on a porta potty. Okay, and he lands on it and he's standing there for a second and we had to create this kind of stress. And he's kind of, uh-oh. And the whole thing caves in he crashes through the roof, the whole damn thing. And we've got to do all the sloshing of that. Oh, yeah. And the whole damn thing falls over and crashes into the dirt. And all the water spills out, pouring out in the dirt. And he has to crawl out through the muck and the mud and the yuck. And then he has one shoe completely soaked, but the other is not. And he gets himself up. That alone, just knocking that thing over and all the elements that we did for that, that took a long time. But then when he gets up, he now is walking towards his RV and his one shoe is completely soaking wet and the other's dry. So we had to do a step, step, step. And we had to get that, you know, it's a fine line. You don't want to get comical. You can't get too over the top stupid because it's not that kind of show, although Dark humor is a great element mm -hmm. in both uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. There's a lot of humor, very dark, but so it's a, you know, we had to get that just right. So there's every show, every episode, there's some challenge like that. It's, that's like, oh my God, it's going <laughs> to take forever. It's going to make it really fun to go back and rewatch Breaking Bad. And, uh, you know, now that we've met you and, and know that each one of those sounds uh, came from your studio. Another one that took real quick, I don't want to waste all your time. Another one that oh, no, please. was probably one of the greatest challenges was the, um, the train episode where they robbed the train of the liquid. I can't even remember what the substance was, but there was a tanker thing filled with this element they needed to make the, the drugs that they couldn't get anymore. So they stopped the train somehow with some ruse of a truck on the, on the tracks. It was all planned out and they, jump up on the train and they're undoing these huge metal, gigantic metal uh, hatches with chains attached and flipping them open and climbing down and climbing all over the thing and hooking stuff and putting tubes down the thing and draining, you know, but to all the heavy metal stuff of the train, we didn't, 
I didn't really have big enough stuff for that. Fortunately, on Breaking Bad, they would send me the episodes a week or more in advance. So I could watch it, make my notes, make my lists, and then hit the town looking for the props. And I ended up at this huge metal recycling facility in San Fernando Valley. And I bought like, I don't know, two, three hundred dollars worth of iron. Some of these props I've used many times since, but things that are worked for the hatch and the unscrewing, the giant, uh, you know, I mean, these are things that are like the size of manhole covers. And um, without getting those tools, without getting those props right, uh, that having the right metal in front of me to, made doing the scene successful. I would have had to fake it with stuff that wouldn't have been as good. So the more prep you can do, but uh, that, that train scene was something else. That was a, there, I could go on and on and on about that show. Uh, every, like I said, everyone had its amazing challenges. Breaking into the ATM machine, that was brutal. Literally, they spent half a show with this guy, this insane drug addict, trying to, they dragged their ATM machine into their living room and they're trying everything they can. Drills, pry bars, all kinds of different tools, sledgehammers, and they're going at it forever. Um, and then they finally pry it open and the wrenching and the breaking and the whatever. And the, yeah, it's every episode, uh, very challenging work. I mean, I knew that show raised the bar for, for television, uh, for everything else that's been created since. I just, this is a great illustration of just the level of detail, even from this aspect that they applied to it. It's fa fascinating. Uh, look, I, I, I often say it, but Breaking Bad was the pinnacle of my career. I was, I was blessed and lucky to have been selected to work on that. And I feel really good about delivering. When that shut ended and they started Better Call Saul, they, had to, they left Warner Brothers and they did a package deal somewhere else for the first three seasons. They weren't real happy. Season four, they changed that deal. And they, I, they called me back. They said, we're going to start season four. Uh, and now we were able to break away the Foley from the package deal. Would you be interested in coming back? I said, hell, God, yeah. So I've done season four, season five. And hopefully the, there is a season six that's going to be done, um, which is the final season. And I haven't heard one that hopefully that'll start up fairly soon. One other quick thing, the... Uh, Foley Artists Group, Facebook group, you know, with thousands of members. They had a contest. They, they do contests. And it says, uh, the first one they did was, uh, what's the best Foley on a feature film? That, you know, and everyone could write in what they thought was whatever. And then they s narrowed it down to like three or four. And then they, everyone got to put their vote in on what they thought. And they selected uh, uh, what, you know, what the Foley artists say is the best Foley on a feature film. Hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, that was a live sound effect. Uh, yeah, that's right. That wasn't me. They, the last one they just did was the best, uh, what's the best Foley, not cut sound effects, but Foley on a television series. And the group voted Breaking Bad. Congratulations. That's I, wonderful. I was, I, I, That's I, awesome. I, I told them I was honored that that meant more to me than, uh, than an Emmy. 
you know, here's my, the whole, all my peers uh, saying that, uh, you know, the work we did on that was the best fully in television. Well, and, and like you said, two shows that Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, two shows full of dark comedy, uh, which I appreciate. Uh, and another film that I enjoy, <laughs> as far as dark comedy goes, uh, Little Miss Sunshine, another project that you worked on, we mentioned yep. a little earlier. I liked what you said uh, in the documentary that you like to enhance the comedy in, in a film uh, or show whenever you can. Yeah. Could you tell us the story about the, the V-Dub van in Little Miss Sunshine? I know what you're talking about. This, remember, Little Miss Sunshine was kind of a budget thing. I think we only had like four or five days, uh, maybe six. I can't remember. But it was, we had to move fairly quickly. And uh, we were completely left alone to do what we wanted on this. And one of the things uh, you remember from the film is this derelict Volkswagen van that the family traveled, was traveling across country in. And how the only way they could get it started was by the family piling out and grabbing it and pushing the van to compression start it. The van kind of became a character in, in my eyes. The van was a character all by itself. And uh, so we did everything we could to get across the fact that this van was beat up, broken down, a rattle trap. We did everything we could to make it sound like, you know, it was on its last legs. You know, sound effects, of course, with the engine and the sputtering and all that, that's not us, but the, you know, they did their bit. And we would, you know, like rolling, rolling the side door, we would have it like kind of wonky and wobbly and, and uh, everything about it, we tried to get, convey that this thing was a piece of crap. And in the process of working on it, you know, the stage gets messy, you start throwing crap around and and while you're in the fever of, of working quickly. And we had a great big uh, metal hood down on the ground. And I think I threw a car door on top of that just to get it out of the way. And then I'm going to get something and I step on the door on the hood and it made this incredible, this amazing metal stress ronk. And I went, whoa. Uh, if I had tried to get that, I probably would have failed. But <laughs> these two pieces of uh, these two big props on top of each other was an accidental find. And I went, oh, my God, that's amazing. We got to use this. So we decided to do that every time they the family would start to push the van. Right it would groan and creak like it was resisting. <laughs> uh, you know, it wasn't free rolling. So it added personality to the, to an inanimate object. Right. So it was, we were, we were cracking up going, Oh my God, this is priceless. This is really good. They're going to love this. <laughs> and, um, and they did use it. But the thing that was the most satisfying and one of the more satisfying moments in, uh, you know, in my Foley career was I went to a screening. As a matter of fact, it was at a high school that had a very sophisticated film studies program. And there was a panel discussion for uh, Little Miss Sunshine. And on that panel up on the stage, they asked, the director was there, the directors, I think it was a husband and wife, and a producer and uh, the sound editor, I believe was there. And 
believe it or not, Brian Cranston, uh, I, who I talked to, he was on the panel. He had a tiny little role. I don't know if you remember at the swimming pool. He read, he got a hold of the script before they shot it. He begged, he wanted in on this project really bad. He wanted the, the dad role. Uh, they didn't, they didn't go for it, but they did throw him the bone of that one part. Anyway, so we had a panel discussion and, uh, and then when it was over and the questions and answers and what have you, it was a pretty fun day. Then they ran the film. So we're watching and, and you know, we're, we're now back sitting in the audience with, with uh, everyone. And there were a lot of, it wasn't just kids. There were a lot of parents and a lot of faculty and whatever. It was a big deal for them. So they're running the, we're running the film. And it was, I think the second or the third time it was at a gas station when the family piled out and they get in and they start pushing the van and they really played up this, this stress creak. The audience laughed. <laughs> they laughed at the sound effect. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, what the, that's awesome. And it made me feel really good. It's very rare that we're able to do something in Foley that can actually add a laugh to a comedy. And it got a big laugh uh, and it became kind of a part of the whole thing. And, and the whole thing was by accident. I happened to, was walking to get another prop and stepped on the pile of uh, metal parts and it made this sound that and the rest is history. <laughs> Hey, you mentioned Greg earlier about the kind of the peer um, accolades on on Facebook, and we talked about Emmys. You've been nominated for thirteen Emmys, almost one almost every year uh, for the past decade, and one in two thousand four for Dinosaur Planet. So I can't imagine. And Matt, were, Matt and I were trying to figure this out. How do you recreate sounds? Mm. You know, nobody's ever really honestly heard. So, what challenges did you find, and what? solutions that you come up with for for that you're right dinosaur planet being cgi the whole thing there is no production track they're not there recording with a boom mic uh it was a hundred percent without sound so the sound editors their main thing was the vocalizations of the dinosaurs they they their job was to get the roars and the growls and the grunts and the and all of that as uh, accurately as I mean, you know, we don't know. We don't have recordings of dinosaurs. But, you know, this is what they do. The job is to make sounds that are believable. That you, when you hear it with the picture, you're going, I totally buy that. My job was the footsteps was the main thing. And, of course, that was interesting because they were in water, swamp, mud, dirt, crushing leaves, and, and a lot of foliage being crushed under these giant footsteps. And all of the eating, crunching of the, of the leaves of, you know, of the, uh, the plant eating dinosaurs, ripping of the foliage and crunching of the leaves and branches and what have you. And then, of course, the meat eaters uh, was a whole different thing. And that's, you know, a lot of work with a chamois and, and uh uh, celery and lasagna pasta shells crunching yeah. <laughs> um, for bone and gristle. Uh, chamois more for blood and gut. And uh, we had to create every everything that these dinosaurs did, we had to make sounds for. So 
again, it's it's choices. You know, we we play around a little bit. We come up with things and we go, oh, yeah, ooh, that's good. Let's, let's get this roll, roll, you know. So I was very fortunate to be part of that one that won. Emmys are hard to win. As you know, I've been up for 13. I've got one. And that was a long time ago. Uh, Breaking Bad was up three or four years in a row. Couldn't win. It's a different story today. Competition with what's happened with all, you know, the uh, Netflix and Amazon and, and, and all these amazing projects. Uh, they're, they're getting tough, very tough to compete with. Yeah, they're almost movie studios, but they're competing at the yes, television yeah. level. Right. And they also can afford uh, Game of Thrones, uh, which we were up against several times. And, and uh, you know, they, they won a lot. But Game of Thrones is tough to compete. You know, all the shows that were up against it, uh, you might as well just, you, you know, throw in the towel because they could afford a schedule. Even Breaking Bad had an unusual of two and a half to three and a half days of Foley. They would have five and six days of Foley. They would have uh, two weeks or more of sound editing. Instead of a, a four-day mix, they would have a 10-day mix. So they had the ability to super fine-tune every element of the soundtrack to almost a degree that it, was, it wasn't fair. <laughs> Um, because we're all working under more or less the same restrictions of time and what have you, but they were in a, they had unlimited, uh, it was tough to compete with. Well, speaking of Game of Thrones, one thing from a Foley perspective, I think I've always wondered, it has to do with swords. I always wondered when you, when you pull a sword out of a sheath, regardless of the sheath <laughs> is metal or leather, it always makes that, it makes yeah. that yeah. metal sound. <laughs> And it's what I always associate, and it's it's obviously it's not the same every time. But okay, what is that? Well, sound? I do a lot of World of Warcraft, so I know about swords. Yeah, it's we call it the Jing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I try and stay away from what I avoid. I go out of my way to avoid the classic thing that you always hear—that very ringy. Look, if it's metal coming out of metal, it's kind of unavoidable. We try and pitch it down to make it sound heavier and thicker. We'll do whatever we can. We use, I, I've got a large collection of sword blanks. I went to a sword maker and got bought a bunch of blanks from not finished swords, but the long pieces of various thicknesses in this. So they're all different sounds. And uh, we play a lot with that. But I, I, I try and go out of my way to make them a little different. But look, film is its own reality. We've been taught since childhood to expect to hear certain things when we watch films. Yeah. And uh, if you don't hear that, you might go, well, that's shit, that's not right. <laughs> Even though it might be more accurate, so you got to be careful there. You got to kind of satisfy that. But at the same time, you want to put your own spin on it. So, yeah. But basically, you do what you think you would do for a sword out, which is take a sword or a sword blank and getting the right materials. I've got a bunch of swords in various fully stages that look fantastic, but sound like shit. <laughs> uh, and they're just it's just cheap metal you know it's kind of that cheap touristy metal 
stuff and it's just not good. So you've got to get the right steel that's quality. Boiling down again, uh, you got to have the right props to, to, to make the best sounds. You got to have the right props. Wow, it's been quite an education. We could we could uh, have you back and uh, probably just talk about just one of your hundreds and hundreds of projects for the oh, for sure. uh, twice as long. <laughs> this is fascinating stuff. We're going to have to come down and visit you. Oh, well, you're welcome. And uh, we'll have fun. We'll bring you on the stage and we'll have you do some cues. Deal. That would I'm be serious. awesome. If you yeah. ever get down this way, don't you must call me. Oh, we will. Definitely. You guys look like a couple of guys I would enjoy having a few beers with. Oh, likewise. Likewise. <laughs> All right, great. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. Appreciate your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you, Greg. Yep. Well, thank you again to our guest, Greg Barbanel. You can learn more about Greg's work and go behind the scenes with many other talented Foley artists on the documentary Actors of Sound, available now to rent on Amazon. Join us next week, April 23rd, as we celebrate our 25th episode with special guest, award-winning actor and director, Frank Ferrate. Frank is the star of the critically acclaimed one-man show, An Evening with Groucho, and has been called by the New York Times the greatest living interpreter of Groucho Marx's material ever. Don't miss it. And remember, Heilman and Haver can now be heard every week. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. If you enjoy the show, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. And of course, we'd love to hear from you, so please join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter and email us with thoughts and comments at heilmanandhaver at gmail.com. And until the footlights come up again, thanks for supporting local theater and for joining us here on Heilman and Haver. 